Well, we are kind of in a transition here from one sermon series to another. We just finished up the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and now we are going to jump into a new series that we are calling The Big Story. So typically we preach through books of the Bible here at Center Church. Uh, This is a topical series, but we will very much be tied to the Bible throughout this series, as I hope you'll see this morning as well. So a few things just to kind of introduce the series, what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish in this series. Uh, One thing, one really big thing, is we hope that this series will help you learn how to read your Bible uh, better. We want to help you learn how to read your Bible. Uh, Secondly, we also hope that as we go through this series, that the Bible will become more accessible to you, that it will become more alive. But when I was younger in my faith, I remember just struggling with kind of how the Bible was put together. They just seemed like a lot of really disparate stories. I didn't understand how everything was connected. Uh, But when I did, the Bible really came alive for me, and I saw how it was just one big story. And, And another thing, as we go through this series, we hope that you'll understand a little bit more about how and why we preach the way that we do. Um, So the way that we're going to structure this series is we've got a number of themes here at the beginning of uh, the series, and so we're going to kind of trace some of these themes throughout the Bible to see how they pop up, that they're not just in one spot, but they're continuous throughout the whole of the Bible. And then we're going to move into look at some people and some, some different stories, some stories that maybe many of you have heard many times but we want to try and flesh some things out and, and maybe kind of reorient some of the teaching you might have seen or heard on some of these stories in the past. So, the Bible is a story. It's a story that's primarily about God. It tells us who God is. It tells us about what God values and his viewpoints. And as we read through the Bible... This story about God is told in a number of different ways. It's told through narrative. It's told through history. It's told through poetry. It's told through letters from one individual to a church. And God tells this story about himself through the people that he has created. Those people that he loves. But at the end of the day, the Bible, this one big story, is about God. It's not about us primarily. It is about God. But the story is for us. It's for us because we find ourselves in this story all the time. Now, the Bible is broke up into two different halves. The first half being the Old Testament. The second half being what's known as the New Testament. The Old Testament, what we find there is all kinds of images and people and events and places that have meaning beyond themselves. They're not just a story about this person and that's it, they die and then it's done, but so often what we find is that this person is pointing forward. It's, they're foreshadowing something that will happen later in the story. So these symbols and patterns and types and shadows, what they're ultimately doing in the Old Testament is they're pointing to something greater. Ultimately, they are pointing us 
to Jesus. And one way that we see this is in the New Testament book of Romans chapter 5. We see in Romans 5.14, it says there, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type. This is where we get the word typology. And so what this is saying in this verse is that Adam, as a type, is foreshadowing Jesus. He's, po- he's pointing to Jesus. He's pulling the story forward towards Jesus. Then what we have to do is we have to figure out how is he pointing forward to Jesus? How do Jesus and Adam bring things, how, how are they brought together in a significant way? And what we learn from how the New Testament reads the Old Testament is that Adam isn't just some guy who was the first guy and then he died and then there's no relevance beyond that. What happened in Genesis, what we find in Adam has ramifications far beyond it. And this is why I say the Bible is one interconnected story. It is one big story that is woven together. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to start with Adam and talk about creation, because that's the theme that we're talking about this morning is creation. We read in Genesis 1-1, it says there, first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1 goes on to tell what God created on each of the first six days, and then how he rested on the seventh day. Just a couple of items that I want to note here. We could spend the whole morning on this verse. We could actually spend multiple weeks on this verse. But just a couple things I want to note for our purposes this morning. First of all, God created by speaking. God created by speaking. We repeatedly hear in the first chapter of Genesis, and God said, the words that God speaks are powerful. They're powerful. We're going to come back and revisit this later on this morning. Secondly, God's creation was good. God would create, he would look at what he created, and then he would declare, and it was good. God is good. His creation is good. But what we find in this story of this good creation is that things change very quickly. In Genesis 3, God's good creation is fractured. His creation rebels against him. Sin separates those that God has created from God himself. And then things go from bad to worse. What we find as the story progresses along is that wickedness is just going to multiply. And what we read in Genesis chapter 6, it says this, The Lord was sorry that he had made man. It grieved him. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we read there that God is going to blot out man. And for some of us, it might seem like, man, that's a really harsh thing that God is doing to man. But we have to understand that what man has done to God is basically to flip him the bird and to spit spit in his face and say, I have nothing, I want nothing to do with you. This is how man has acted 
towards God. And it says then that Noah found favor. It doesn't mean that Noah was this great man. Now we'll read in the next verse, if you're reading in your Bible, you would read that he ta- he's talked about as a blameless man and a righteous man. But the reason he's described in those ways is because he found favor in God's eyes. It's not because he was unlike everyone else in the world. He was just as sinful as the rest. But he found favor in God's eyes. And so God chooses Noah to bring salvation. And when we look at Noah is known as in terms of being kind of the primary person in what's known as the flood account, okay? So God sends a flood on the earth. And so we've got a creation account, and then five chapters later, we have what's known as the flood account. And if you look at those two stories, you'll find quite a few things that are very similar. And I'm not going to cover all of them, but just a couple of things that we see similar between these two stories. First of all, we read in Genesis 1 that the earth was formless and void and covered by the waters. And this is very much what we see as God judges the earth in the flood account. It was covered with waters. Secondly, we find in the flood account that God commissions Noah very similarly to how he commissioned Adam in Genesis 1. He said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So in the same way that he chose Adam, we've got this one representative man, he now chooses Noah. And this pattern is going to continue. God is going to take another sinful man, and he is going to make that man new in a sense. He's going to give him a new name. He's going to take a man named Abram, and he's going to rename him Abraham. And this man is going to be a father to a new nation, a nation that's going to be known as God's people or Israel. But this people is going to end up enslaved in Egypt. And then, as they're enslaved in Egypt, God is going to call another man, Moses. And through Moses, a new reality is going to be created for Israel. God is going to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt through this man, Moses. However, Israel's response to God delivering them from slavery is going to be complaining. And this is going to cause them then to wander in the desert for 40 years. Eventually, after that generation of complainers dies off in the desert, in the wilderness... God's people are led to a land flowing with milk and honey. What was known as the promised land. What others might call a veritable Eden. The Eden that Adam and Eve were born into. So what we need to see here, and we're not far into the story yet, but what we need to see happening already, and this happens throughout the Old Testament, is this pattern for Israel. God created, and they sinned, and God judged them, and then God recreated their reality in some way and in some form. And this happens over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. We, f- we find it happening after Moses. 
God recreates his people with judges and with kings and with prophets. And each time God does this, Israel persists in their sin, driving them away from God. Israel is conquered by other nations and sent into exile. God's response is to deliver them. And this happens over and over until there's only a remnant of people left, a small number of people who remain in their nation. And what we find at the end of the Old Testament is Israel is merely a shell of its former glory. They have been ravaged by sin. They are separated from God. And as we move from the New Testament, or the Old Testament, now into the New Testament, in the New Testament, it begins with Israel enslaved in the land, the former promised land that God had given to them. They are now slaves there. The God who has spoken many times before and delivered his people, who has repeatedly created and recreated by his powerful word, has now fallen silent. And he will remain silent for 400 years, what would seem like an eternity to this nation, as though God no longer existed. Until we read at the beginning of the New Testament in John 1. It says there, In the beginning was the Word. Even right there, you should hear an echo of the first verse of the Bible where it says there, In the beginning, God. And here we read, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, the Word of God, was going to take on flesh and come and live with man. And what, and the fact that this man was God was evident to many, many people, because when Jesus spoke, crazy things happened. Blind people began to see. Sick people became well. Deaf people heard. Lame people walked. Dead people came alive. So in the midst of darkness, in the midst of death, in the midst of nothingness, God created. And in this creating, he demonstrated the goodness of his creation again. But what we find here in the beginning of the New Testament is that still the changes in the natural order did not resolve spiritual ills. So even though a deaf person could now hear, it did not resolve their greatest problem. And this is true for us as well. Changed circumstances will not resolve our issues. They won't. You can get a new job. You might hate your job, and you can get a new job, and that is not going to solve everything for you. Removing the slow car that's driving in front of you in the fast lane is not going to make life ideal. You can get a bigger salary. You could get a spouse or kids that you long for. Or you could long for a different spouse or different kids. But even if you would get what you, you want 
you would not be satisfied. Nothing outside of us is our greatest problem. Nothing outside of us is our greatest problem. And God, as you read the whole of the Bible, God is painstakingly demonstrating this to us over and over again. You can change externals all day long, but you will still be dissatisfied. You will still have an ache in your soul longing for something more. Our problem is sin. Our problem is sin. The debt of sin must be paid for. The debt of sin must be forgiven. There must be something outside of us that will resolve this greatest problem for us. And this gets developed in the New Testament. In John 3, we read there, you must be born again. You must be born again. We must, spiritually speaking, be made new. We, as a person, need to be recreated in a spiritual sense. We need Jesus to take what the Bible says is our sinful heart of stone, this rebellious heart, and to replace it with a new heart that has affections for God. We need to be recreated in such a way that we see ourselves as new people with a new identity, that we are now not our own, we are Jesus' people. We are part of Jesus' church. That we are no longer slaves to sin. We are free. We are forgiven. We are alive. We have become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is a verse in the New Testament, says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There it is, explicitly. We cannot become a new creation. We cannot find what we're looking for outside of Jesus. The ache in our soul is aching for Jesus. Only he can satisfy us. So as we take just this really brief journey from Old Testament into the New Testament, I hope that you can see some patterns already developing. The idea that God's word is significant, that he creates and then he recreates and he brings about the final new creation through his word, through his word, that his word is powerful, his word is vital. And then we read in the New Testament that Jesus himself is referred to as the Word. He is the Word himself. And then we read all of this in the Bible, which we know to be God's Word. So God's Word is significant. Note also how recreation always revolves around one representative representative man whether it's Adam, or it's Abraham, or it's Joseph, or it's Moses, the list goes on and on and on, so that by the time we get to Jesus, we should not be surprised. Jesus has come to do what all of these other men could not do. He is the ultimate deliverer. He is our rescuer, as we sang just a moment ago. He is the answer to our greatest problem. Also, 
the repetition of creation and recreation that we see throughout the Bible points to how God works. It gives us a window into the ways in which God works in this world. We see throughout the Bible his continuous pursuit of those who have rebelled against him. God's love is steadfast. If we look at the whole of the story in the Bible, we see this ongoing revolt by humanity against God. Sin blinds us. It makes us insane that we would continually run away from God, that we would run away from the one who continually pursues us, who loves us like no other, who cares for us in a way that no one else ever has or ever will. God's continual willingness to recreate shows us his love, his steadfast love, and it also shows us our need for it. We need it more than anything else. So these patterns that we see revealed throughout the Bible, they show us God's character. They show us how he works. And I think this is why the repeated theme of creation as it pops up throughout the storyline matters. This is why it matters, because it shows us who God is, his character, and it shows us how he works on our behalf. So we, we typically close our sermons uh, with what we call gospel application. And we call it gospel application because it's not just application. It's not go out and do these things because we don't believe that's what the Bible teaches us primarily. It's not about what we do. We call it gospel application because the gospel is about what Jesus has done. It's about who he is. Okay? And so gospel application, as we walk out these doors, we want to be reminded, this is who Jesus is. I can't do what he has done. I need to look at him Revel in what he's done and trust in him, not trust in ourselves. So that's why we call it gospel application. For those of you who are Center Church, who are here regularly, you oftentimes know that that means like five to eight minutes. We probably have a little bit more than five to eight minutes today. So the picture that we get of God as creator, it conveys power. It conveys power to us. In fact, I think it would be right to say that God is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. One way that we can see God's power in creation is that he creates out of nothing. It's not like he has a bunch of materials and then he's going to form them together. He has nothingness. There's nothing there, and he's going to speak things into existence. Where there is nothing, God speaks, and what he has spoken appears. The power that we see displayed in God should fork, uh, force us to reckon with our standing before God. The immensity and the vastness of God's power says we cannot be independent of him. His power implies that we are dependent on God. We need him. We are designed to rely on him. And if we seek independence from God, 
we won't really find freedom, though it might feel like that, though it might seem like that, we won't really find freedom. We'll find that we're slave to our passions. We're slave to our failures. We're slave to our desires. Ultimately, we're slave to ourselves. And the reality is, we are not good gods at all. Deep down, every single one of us knows this. The frustration we feel day in and day out, the control we try and exercise, but we fail to be able to, con- to exercise that control, says to us, you are not a good God. You are not a good God. Creator God is all-powerful. He is good. We need him. And this issue of dependence informs how salvation plays out in the Bible. Ephesians 2 says, we read this earlier, but it says, we are dead in our sin. We are dead in our sin. When it says dead, that doesn't mean kind of dead. Just kind of maybe we're laid out for a bit. It means dead. What it's saying is that our salvation must come out of nothing. Our salvation must come out of nothing. There must be a miracle. And that's what God does. He creates our salvation out of a dead and hopeless situation. And what this says to us is we don't choose God. God must come to us who are dead in our sin. He must awaken us. He must make us alive. And that is the only way that we can be saved. We do not save ourselves in any way, nor do we add to God's salvation in any way. And this, I think, the second point, first of all, We don't save ourselves, but for those of us who are Christians, we need to hear, we don't add to our salvation in any way. It's not not like we can become a greater uh, version of a Christian by following more rules or being more disciplined. No. You are saved by Jesus, and you can do nothing to add to what Jesus has already done. So when we see, when we walk out of here today and we're going to see those dead leaves that are laying on the ground all over the place, that's a reminder that God has put in the natural world for us to say, that is me, or that was me. There is nothing that that leaf can do to climb back up on that tree and to make itself alive again. And conversely, in the spring, if you're a Christian, when those leaves appear on trees, that is a reminder of the fact God has come to you and he has saved you. He has made you alive. Rejoice in that reality. This stuff is all over creation. We just finished a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and in there it talks about the sun, how the sun comes up in the morning and when it does that that sun is driving out darkness and then at the end of the day that sun is going to set and darkness comes and this is a, rom- a reminder for us of the reality every day 
God has come into the world. He is the light of the world, and he comes to drive out darkness. We read about this in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says there, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the gospel. God is the one who comes to us, who shines his light into the darkness of our hearts, and he saves us. We do not save ourselves. The theme of creation also matters because of how it emphasizes the importance of God's word. God's powerful word creates and it reshapes our natural and physical reality. But that's not the end goal, okay? Ultimately, all these physical, natural realities are intended to point us to something greater. And that greater thing is our spiritual reality. So what we see as it pertains to God's word is that God's powerful word is irresistible. God's powerful word is irresistible. We see this in creation. When God speaks, things come alive. Things are created. It's not as though those things are fighting against God. We see this all throughout the Bible as well. There's a prophet in the Old Testament whose name is Ezekiel. And God told Ezekiel to go to a valley. And in this valley, there were a bunch of dead, dry bones. And God told Ezekiel to speak to those bones, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And those bones did not resist God's word. Those bones were put together, and people came alive when God's word spoke to them. A man in the New Testament who had died, his name was Lazarus, and Jesus comes to Lazarus, and he calls him out of the tomb. Lazarus didn't fight Jesus and say, no, 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 I'm not doing that right now. God's powerful word is irresistible. This means that when God calls you through Jesus to trust in him, to turn from your sin, when you believe his word, you will be saved. You will be recreated from being a hopeless sinner to a saved child. Isaiah 55, 11 says, my word will not return to me empty. So when God's word goes out, it's going to accomplish what God intends. And, and I would say, me standing up here is an example of this. When I was young, my dad was a pastor. And I was ardent in my profession. There is one thing I never want to do. I never want to do. I never want to be a pastor. I don't want to make that little of money. I don't like all the trash that comes with it. I was so shy, I could not even fathom standing up in front of people. I couldn't have a conversation with one person and look them in the eye. The whole idea of being a pastor sounded hellish to me. I, had, I wanted nothing to do with being a pastor. And yet, somehow, some way, God's word came to me, first of all, to save me. And then to call me to do this. And not to do it begrudgingly. But the fact that I love my job, I would, there is nothing else I would rather do. I love my job. Even the hard, painful parts of it. Because even in that, God is refining me, changing me, showing me my sin in that as well. When God's word goes out, it will not return to him empty. 
Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. This speaks to the reality. We talk here often about the need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. Why we need to do this incessantly. Because there's this mysterious thing that happens that when God's word is preached, somehow, some way, people believe. The reality is, I know, standing up here, you could go to many other churches. You could find more effective communicators, people who tell better stories, individuals who look much better than a 6'8 skinny dude. Like, I, I get that, okay? But still, somehow, some way, by God's grace, some of you at times will say, God really spoke to me through that. And, and the reality is not because I'm impressive. I get that. Somehow, some way, God's word has gone forth. And it has worked on your heart. It has pressed you in a way that I could not manufacture in and of myself. We preach the Bible here because God has promised that he will work through the proclamation of his word. And so we, we are ardent in our attempt to preach the Bible, because we know that in the Bible, we'll end up at Jesus. This isn't about making Kevin look good. This isn't about making any of you look good. It's about Jesus, and that's where we want to end up. So we need to hear Jesus, who is the Word of God, to believe. And, and all of this that I'm saying informs a truth that I think we struggle to grasp. And a truth that we struggle to be grasped by as well. When we believe the gospel, when Jesus saves us, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, we are recreated spiritually. We're recreated. We are new people. When that happens, we're created to reflect God. I guess you could say that even from the time we're born, because we're born in the image of God. We are created, we are born to reflect God, to point to Him. We were created for God's glory, not for our own. We are saved for God's glory, not for our own. So the whole of our lives is to point to God. And when we look at the whole of the biblical story, we see something occurring after God recreates. The pattern that we found. Creation, sin. And that's where we oftentimes find ourselves. People turn back to sin. For all of us, Christian or non-Christian, we deal with what's known as a sin nature. In our flesh, we have this pull to live for ourselves. To not live for God, but to try and make much of me. To build the kingdom of Kevin rather than God's kingdom. And the tendency as we fall back into sin, as we run after these things, is to begin to think, especially with sins that we've struggled with for a long time, is to begin to think, well, this is who I am. I'll never conquer this sin. This is just going to be a part of my story. And oftentimes what I have found is we just begin to give in to that. 
and our heart begins to harden in greater ways. But Paul, the man who wrote a majority of the New Testament, he had a struggle in his life that never left, and we don't know what it, what it was, but it's referred to as a thorn in his flesh. All of us will deal with temptation. Sin will always be a reality for us on this side of death. But for us to begin to think and live and believe in such a way that we are condemned sinners is a lie. When trusting Jesus, God has promised to make you a new creation. When trusting Jesus, God has promised to make you a new creation. Romans 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus. It was put to death with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. God intends to make us a new creation, to give us new passions and new desires, new affections for Him. He allows you to live for something greater than yourself. The only power that the old sinful self has in you is what you give it. Jesus' death has stripped sin of its power in our lives. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer, for those of, of you who are Christians, you are no longer a slave to sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe what the Bible says about you. You are no longer a slave to sin. When we run back to sin, we are like a dog that is returning to its vomit rather than this unending supply of doggy treats that it would love to have. Colossians 3.1 says, You have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Stop running back to those things. You are new. The old has gone. Has gone. God has changed you. Not only has he changed you, but he continues to change you as well. So don't live in that old way of living. Don't let that be your identity. God intends to change that, to free you from that. There's this great hope at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. It says there, Jesus says, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. And this is not just a future promise. It is a future promise that breaks into the here and now. We can experience this newness by trusting in Jesus, by letting him change our priorities, by letting him transform our affections and give us new desires. But this doesn't happen by your rigorous discipline. 
This doesn't happen by you following a bunch of religious rules. This doesn't happen by your hard work. This happens by you trusting in the one who has accomplished for you what you can never accomplish in and of yourself. Trusting in Jesus. The implications from this theme of creation are instrumental to the Christian life. We must see God for who he is. He is a powerful God. He is a loving God. He is good. Who he is will affect, will change, will form who his followers are. If you believe in this God, he will shape you in this way. And this has implications for every part of life. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when you are despairing, can you have hope? Is the God that you worship powerful enough to take the horrific things of life and redeem them, work them for your good? God is powerful. He is over everything, even all the brokenness that sin wreaks in our world. Let who God has revealed himself to be determine how you view and interact with your circumstances. Don't let your circumstances determine how you view God. Let God and how he has revealed himself to you shape and form how you view the rest of life. This theme of creation has implications also for how we overcome sin. Many times when we struggle with sin, especially addictive sin, generational sin, sin that we've struggled with for a long time, we begin to believe, whether it's conscious or unconscious, this is who I am. And the Bible says very clearly, this is not who you are, Christian. Sin has no power over you. Stop giving it power. You are no longer a slave. You are free. You are forgiven. You are alive. Live in who Jesus has made you to be. Find your identity in him, not in the shame and the guilt that Satan would love to whisper in your ear. The theme of creation also has implications for joining Jesus on his mission. Who is this God that you follow? How do you convey him to others? What do you say about him? Is he a powerful God? Is he a loving God? Is he a good God? Or is he a small God with little power? Is he impotent? That is not the God of the Bible. He is a ferocious God who ferociously loves his creation, who chases after us, who rescues us, who does what we cannot do, who lays his life down for us. If you are not a Christian this morning, I invite you to trust in this God, to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for your unending joy. Trust in him. If you are a Christian, I invite you to trust in this God in a deeper way, in a more 
complete way. And, and maybe for some of us who said we are Christians, we've kind of checked that box and we just go through the motions, maybe it'd be good for us to just stop, hit pause, and say, look at our lives and say, am I really? Because I don't see it in many parts of my life. Am I really trusting Jesus? Am I really saved by him? Something that all of us should wrestle with from time to time. Not to entertain doubt, but to honestly assess who is it we are trusting in? Who is our hope in? We're going to take a few moments here at the end of our service to reflect on how Jesus' bloody death actually leads to life. Our life originates in Jesus' death. And we're going to do this as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and communion. This is a time for us to examine our hearts, to confess our sins to God and to others of how we look for life in places filled with death and how we look for life in places other than Jesus himself. This is a chance for us to pray with others. And I'll be off on the side. If any of you want to pray with me, I would love to be able to do that with you. If you have not trusted in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're living in unrepentant sin, if you haven't been made new, then we want to be clear that the bread and the cup are not for you. But Jesus is. And Center Church is. And we want to invite you to trust Jesus. I'd love to chat with you during this time or after the service. For those of us who have undergone God's powerful, transforming, miraculous work by giving us a new heart, and we, we trust in Jesus as our Savior and as our King, we invite you to come and take the bread and cup, which signify Jesus' beaten body and shed blood for our sin. So I'm going to pray I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And then we're going to sing a number of songs. And I want to invite you to come down anytime during those songs. Take the cup and the drink. So will you guys stand with me? I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to read a scripture for us to lead us into this time. God, thank you for the fact that you have created this world. You've created to share your grace with us, to pour out your goodness with a creation that didn't deserve any of it. And not only that, but we're a creation that has rebelled against you, who has pushed you away, and yet you keep chasing after us. And the greatest depiction that we have of your pursuit of us is found in the cross. The fact that you, God, perfect God, who did nothing wrong, subjected yourself to sinful man, to be brutally beaten and hung on a cross for your enemies. That is love. There is no other depiction of love that great in this world. This world has never seen it. This world will never find another like it. You alone are the one true God. You alone are worthy of our trust you alone are worthy of our praise. And so God, as we take these moments to reflect on who you are and what you have done on our behalf, 
I pray that you would draw us to yourself in greater ways. That your glory, your weightiness, would rest heavy upon us so that we would see you more clearly. We would understand who you are and what you have done and that you intend our joy much more than we intend our own joy. So God, rescue us, save us, and may we delight in you alone. Let me read a passage of scripture to lead us into this time. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.